All right, good morning, everyone. Um, as always, I am very thankful to be able to worship with you and to share God's word. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And we do want to welcome you. Hopefully you can come out to the park day, uh, hopefully get more connected. And if there's anything we can do to help you get more connected, give you more information, uh, please do ask anyone, especially outside after service at the info table, and we'd love to help you with that. Now, uh, before we go into our message for today, uh, I do actually want to take a brief moment, and our church does this. We don't like to just be isolated and insular, but I think when there are appropriate times, we like to be aware of kind of what's going on in the extended world, in our nation, and we want to acknowledge and pray for certain things. And I think this past week, I'm sure for a lot of us, uh, if not all of us, it's been a tougher week, uh, especially in recent weeks with a lot of stuff's going on, a lot of painful things, a lot of shootings that have happened in our country. Uh, but I know especially this past week, it's been a heavy year. Because it was at the elementary school in Uvati, Texas. And yeah, we have a handful of parents here. Uh, we know people who work in education. And yeah, it, it's a very difficult time for a lot of us. I'm sure a lot of us are still processing. A lot of info is still coming out. Uh, but long story short, whether you saw it in the news or social media, I mean, 19 elementary school students and two teachers were killed uh, this past week. And so it's a time of uh, obviously a lot of grieving uh, that's appropriate. And so in light of that, actually, before we go into today's word, if we can just take a moment and pray as a church, uh, acknowledging that there is a God and a Heavenly Father who feels probably more than any of us for kind of how tragic this really is. And so uh, please join me as I lift up a prayer on behalf of our church. Uh, Heavenly Father of all mercy, at this time, God, we confess that for a lot of us, our hearts are weary at the seemingly endless news that we see and hear on, on such a regular basis about the violence, the brokenness in our nation in particular. We're especially broken over the recent tragedy that took place in Ovadi, Texas. God, we want to grieve and mourn for the 19 children, the two teachers who were killed and taken so abruptly from their loved ones and families. Uh, we pray especially for the immediate families, the parents, the siblings of the children and teachers, that you would give them strength, surround them with love and support. They now have to do the difficult path of moving forward from this unthinkable tragedy. We ask for your supernatural grace and mercy to cover the students, the parents, and the surrounding community there. They would use whatever and whoever it takes to bring about safety and comfort. God, we also want to pray as you call us to for the leaders and the officials. That you would grant them wisdom and discernment to lead well in a trying and divided time like this. And that our leaders would pursue justice, mercy, and peace for the communities, for our nation. And God, in times like this, it's easy to feel nothing but hopelessness and despair. But we want to place our full hope and trust in you. That you alone are just, you alone are perfect. That you not only perfectly sympathize and are compassionate towards the broken as we sing today. But that you will one day come to make even the worst of wrongs right in the way that only you can. And so God, help us in times like this to continue to draw near to you with our sorrows, our thoughts, our confusions. Especially in difficult times. Father, we thank you. We want to lift them up in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me in that. Um, so if that, you know, with that being said, if you're joining us, we've been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And for the past several weeks, we've, what we've been doing is we've been seeing how Jesus masterfully has been basically deconstructing Old Testament Jewish religion. The way he's been doing this is he's been saying, hey, you think that my kingdom is about external shallow righteousness and deeds only, but it goes far deeper, far more deeper to that. And a significant aspect of righteousness, particularly in the past few weeks that we've seen Jesus kind of deconstructing is that, hey, in the kingdom, it's not just about doing good stuff, but interpersonal relationships matter a lot. 
And basically to sum it up, last week we saw that all of that is encapsulated basically with the idea that to be a disciple in God's kingdom is from the inside out to be a person who loves. And he expands it further and says, not just loving those who are easy to love or those who love you. You don't have to be Christian to do that. But what makes the kingdom shine and what makes the kingdom so otherworldly is that love extends even to enemies and to even those who are hard to love. Because Jesus defines neighbor as not those who are chummy with you, but neighbor as anyone and everyone you will come across. And the reason we do that is not so we can be known as loving, but Jesus makes it clear because that now reflects accurately the king of the kingdom who is the heavenly father. Now in our text today, uh, Jesus, he's going to continue his sermon, but he takes a slight shift. Instead of talking now about interpersonal relational things like hating and murder and lust and truthfulness, he shifts over and he talks about the realm of religious practices. Spiritual practices. So if you have your Bibles, let's open our text for today. It's also in your programs. Now it is a larger chunk and so we're going to take a broader approach. I will give a disclaimer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is the famous prayer that Jesus teaches, it's in the text but we're not going to be going over it. So we're going to talk about everything that it's encased in. So when we actually read it, I'll be skipping through verse 9 and 15, which is that portion. But Matthew chapter 6, starting from verse 1, this is the reading of God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now let's skip down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. One universal desire that we all have is we all want to be seen. We all desire to be seen. Everybody wants to be recognized. Everybody wants to be noticed. Everyone wants appreciation. It's not something that you're taught. It's not something you have to learn. I think it's intrinsic to our nature as humans. And it starts very early on. I have an 18-month-old son named Ezra. That guy loves attention. Never taught him this. Uh, and the way I know this is we have a little basketball hoop in our house. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously I have dreams of being a boy dad, that he'll love basketball, he'll be a baller. I always thought, like, from day one, the first word out of his mouth would be ball. It wasn't. As many of you know, it was, oh, yeah. It was a combination of those two words. And so Ezra doesn't like basketball that much. And the reason I know that is because he doesn't shoot the ball on his own accord. He doesn't gravitate towards the basketball or the hoop. But you know what's interesting? When people come over, he suddenly loves basketball. He becomes a hooper. He becomes a baller. He suddenly starts to slam dunk and these things. And I get so confused. I'm like, what's going on here? And do you know why? It's because when people come over, Ezra knows when I slam dunk the ball, 
these people are going to praise me. These people are going to cheer for me. They're going to see me in all my glory. And so suddenly, Ezra flips a switch and he becomes this basketball lover when guests are over. And immediately after he makes a basket, it's so blatant, he'll literally have like that side eye and turn around. He's scanning for praise. It's so funny. And he'll look over as he's waiting for applause and recognition. And if you don't give it to him, he starts it. He starts clapping. And you're just forced to like join in with him, right? Like, okay, this is worthy of praise and recognition. And in his tiny 18-month-year-old toddler little brain, what Ezra has done is what a lot of us do subconsciously. He has made a connection between an external action and the praise that that action brings. Ezra has hardwired that into his brain. Now, is there something so wrong about that, though? Not necessarily. Right? We all like to receive praise. We all like to be applauded. It makes us feel good. Because, again, why? It meets the need that we all have. We want to be seen. Now, obviously, Ezra's just a toddler, so it's not a big deal. But imagine Ezra grows up, and he continues down this path. And because he loves the praise of man so much, he basically gives himself into basketball, pretends to love basketball, Goes through the hard work of becoming a basketball player when in reality he could care less about basketball. And he continues this pattern through the rest of his life. Why? In order to be praised. What the ancient Greeks in Jesus' time would do when they look at this behavior and Ezra would say, you know what this is? This is hypocrisy. That's what they would say. Sorry to say it, Pastor Sam, but Ezra's a hypocrite. Now one of the ideas you'll see repeated through our text, and especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is this idea of hypocrisy. Now, the word and idea of hypocrisy, it's loaded, so it does require a little bit of clarification. But at the very least, we all know it's not a good thing. Nobody wants to be called a hypocrite. Back then, the definition was very point blank and clear. A hypocrite was literally a stage actor. You were literally an actor who went on stage to perform, put on a mask, be and do something that you are not, and then you would take that mask off. That's what it meant to be a hypocrite. And in our text today, Jesus repeatedly calls out a version of hypocritical Christianity that his Jewish audience had adopted and embraced. Now, we're not Jews, obviously, today, but I was so rebuked and challenged, not only personally before our church, because again, the audience and context that Jesus is talking to would have been today's modern religious church person. So if any of you grew up in any sort of context where religiosity was something esteemed or Going to vacation Bible school was a good thing or, or reading the Bible and being a good Christian was praise or godly behavior in general was something to be sought after. This message particularly applies to you. And so let's give attention as we dive into what Jesus says. We're going to look at it in three different ways. Number one, so what exactly is the issue of hypocritical religion that he's talking about? What's the issue? Two, what's the nature of it that transcends the historical age and comes to even our day today? The nature of hypocritical religion. And thirdly and most importantly, what is the remedy against it? If we are all sick with the plague of hypocrisy, what is the remedy that Jesus, the great physician, gives? So number one, the issue. Remember, like I just said, Jesus is talking to a primarily religious group of people. And the context where they grew up in was that doing things for God and doing religious behavioral things, it wasn't just a spiritual practice, but it was also a social and cultural one. Everyone was religious in that context. It wasn't a question that your neighbors, your extended neighbors, your community were all religious. They all did religious things. And so a natural result of this kind of context was that spirituality, or at least the appearance of it, not only was it something you do for God, but it came with certain horizontal benefits and a certain elevated status in society. Now, I'm going to argue we are in an interesting time in the church. I don't necessarily think this is the case anymore, nor do I think it will be moving forward. 
I actually think right now, you kind of really have to be a Christian to want to be a Christian. Because it's losing kind of its lack and luster socially and horizontally. But at least even 10 years ago when I was in college, it was a very socially advantageous thing to be a Christian. And it showed up in all kinds of ways. Maybe you can relate if you grew up in a Christian context. I remember one of the more in-your-face ways was when Instagram started to pick up steam. And Instagram basically became this way to broadcast your life and to kind of show off in a way. What people started to do is they would start to post well-staged and well-framed, beautiful pictures of like, you know, craft coffee and a Bible. And it would say something like, oh, I love my mornings with Jesus. I don't know why people did that, but everybody started doing that. And you know what happened? Everyone would start liking those posts. Hashtags became famous, like coffee with Jesus, date with Jesus. Some people would put a caption like, don't bother me, I'm with Jesus. And I'm like, then why would you post it? That makes absolutely no sense, but that's what people would do. And people would then respond and comment and say, oh my gosh, you're so godly, you're so holy. And let's be honest, a lot of us had romantic reasons for doing this. The girl we dated said, like, hey, you need to be more godly if you want me to date you. So you know what you do? You go on Instagram, oh, I'm reading my Bible. We did it to get the girl or the guy. It made people think, wow, that person is so godly. Now for me, growing up in a Christian context and pastor's household, it started way earlier than Instagram. I remember when I was in elementary school, I was literally told, so back then it was not cashless giving. We were given cash on Sunday morning, a crisp dollar bill. I was given two because I needed to be a little holier as a pastor's kid. Two crisp dollar bills. And the ironic thing is I was literally told it's not just giving the dollar. How you give it and how crisp the dollar is matters. I kid you not. So when the offering basket would come around, I'd pull that thing out that I kept kind of like a mint Pokemon holographic card for some reason that would not be crumpled. And I would kind of take it out. I'd like go like this and like crisp it up. So silly to think about. And I kid you not, the staff would look at me and be like, wow, what a good boy. Wow, wow, this is such a precious boy. He cares a lot about that. And what I did was, what Ezra did is I made this horizontal connection that praise and recognition comes through godly behavior. And that's what Jesus is talking about in the text. Verse 1 is basically the summary of everything he's going to say. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, obviously, when somebody says beware, you got to watch out. Because what's to follow is something that's dangerous, right? Like if some, you're about to enter someone's backyard and it says beware, you know, dangerous dog. The stupidest thing you could do is go in there and be like, oh, my gosh, I got bit. That's what it means to beware. It means to take heed. To be cautious because if you're not, something's going to happen. And following his beware caution statement, here's the phrase he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Now it's important we all agree on what he's actually getting at because this is again the whole point of the sermon. The first clarification you need to make in that statement is clearly Jesus is not speaking against the practice of righteousness. He literally spent the entire section of his sermon talking about the importance of righteousness. Internal righteousness, external righteousness, being a righteous person in the kingdom. So it can't be that. Secondly, it's clear he's not even talking about the idea of publicly practicing your righteousness. How do we know that? In chapter 5, he says, you are the light. You are the salt. Let your light shine. He's saying, be public about your faith. Don't hide it. Don't be private about it. In your workplace, let it shine. Be public about the fact that you are God's people in God's kingdom. So it can't be that it's about righteousness or the public nature of it. So what's the issue? It's right there in the text. Beware of practicing righteousness in order to be seen by them. The issue here is one of motive. Jesus says hypocritical religion is birthed out of the motive 
to want the praise and recognition of people rather than of God. It's when you do godly acts, not for God, but for yourself, to garner social clout and reputation. And Jesus, he just dismantles the way that this was happening back then. There's three vivid pictures that he basically talks about because in ancient Israel, if you're talking about what are the three pillars of religiosity, what are the three spiritual disciplines that if you're doing this, you are a good, devout Jew, it was these three things. Giving to the needy or giving alms, what they called back then, praying and fasting. You did those three things, you were the model godly Christian. And so here's what Jesus does to each of those. He dismantles the hypocritical way they were practicing. First he says, in the idea of giving to the needy, in verse 2, don't sound a trumpet. Now, basically it's a figurative way of saying, don't draw attention to yourself and give to the needy in a way where you're trying to show the whole world, look how generous I am. Look how much I give to the needy. Now, there's a lot of ways that could play out, but he says that regarding number one. Regarding prayer, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Now, the way the hypocrites would pray is public prayer was a big deal in Jewish culture. And so they would find the place in the society, in the city, where they can be most visible to all because they wanted to be perceived as this holy religious person. And not only where they prayed, but Jesus has an issue with how they prayed. He says, don't think that your lengthy, conjured up, loud prayers is what's going to make you be heard by God. But that's what these people did. They wanted to ooze out the idea that I'm a passionate person, I love God, look how lofty my prayers are. And Jesus says, that's acting. That's hypocritical. And regarding fasting, he says, this weird phenomenon, what they would do is when they would fast, which is basically you're not eating, they would purposely not shower, which is disgusting. They would not do their hair. In fact, they would intentionally dishevel it. They would make themselves look so hungry that people could not help but say, my goodness, they must be fasting. And they would eat that up and say, absolutely I am. Why aren't you? Look how holy I am. And the common denominator in all of these is the motive again, which is to be seen. They wanted to be seen, and Jesus calls this out as that's hypocritical. That's the issue. Now let's talk about the nature of it. The nature of it. Now obviously I don't think a lot of us are as blatant in these examples that Jesus gives. But I would argue the nature of religious hypocrisy today is much more subtle. And it often goes undetected. And if you're not a Christian, maybe the issue you've had with the church is hypocrisy. And I'm going to argue the nature of it here is actually the genesis of all the things that maybe you do not like about the church and Christianity. And again, the reason Jesus has to say beware is because it's so subtle. Reminds me of how every house is required to have a carbon monoxide detector. The reason you need that is because this deadly gas that can leak without you knowing the reason it's so dangerous it is it's odorless, it's colorless, it's tasteless, but it's deadly. And carbon monoxide, before they made that mandate that every house has to do it, it literally killed a lot of people, made a lot of people sick. Because why? It goes undetected. And so that's the same with religious hypocrisy. Now I think for the argument's sake, I think the most tangible and relevant way that this shows up in the context of a church like ours is in the spiritual act of serving. Now, this is not to call out everyone who serves. This is not to say it cannot show up in other spiritual practices like prayer or reading your Bible. But just for sake of clarity, I'm going to use the example of serving as the most applicable and obvious arena based on Jesus' description of how maybe religious hypocrisy might be showing up. Okay? And I would ask you if you've served before, if you're serving now, ask yourself, oh, it's like carbon di dioxide. This has been going undetected, but maybe this is there. Here's symptom number one. If you get frustrated that your spiritual acts are not noticed or recognized, 
Symptom number one. Like, have you ever done something for God? And again, the whole caveat and irony of all of this is when you say you serve, I think nine out of ten people understand what we mean by that is we serve God. Amen? Like, we're serving God. God is the one who we're serving. God is our audience. And so hypocrisy shows up when we forget that and it shows up in symptom number one, that now you get frustrated that your spiritual acts are not noticed or recognized. Again, have you done something for God? And then you start getting angry or frustrated. Why? Because no one's acknowledging you. Nobody notices you. Like maybe you have legitimately put your head down, sought to serve the church in your community. You made yourself uncomfortable to reach out to people and love people who are hard to love. And you can't help but be frustrated because like, how come nobody sees this? How come nobody notices that? Which leads to the second symptom, which exacerbates the first. If you feel envy, anger, or jealousy when others gain credit and recognition but you do not. Like imagine, you've been leading a community group for four years, you've been double dutying in all these ministries, you've been coming early to set up, leaving early after, leaving late after teardown, you've been grinding education so you can't even join the main worship, and then a new person just shows up one day, signs up to volunteer, and on day one, everyone's like, oh my God, you are the picture of faithfulness. They show up on our Instagram for some reason. Not as a story, but as a post. Because you all know, stories are whatever, but posts, it's like written in pen. And on that post, they're casually serving the children. And they're like, be like this person. So faithful. How would you feel? Or symptom number three. If you get annoyed, frustrated, or angry, that you do not have more of a say in the church, despite how much you feel like you've given and sacrificed. I've seen this play out. Where people, without knowing it, carry a track record of how much they have given in blood, sweat, and tears to God. But now feel entitled that this needs to play out, in my opinion, should carry more weight. What I think and feel about things matters more. Why? Because look at all that I have done. And fourthly, and I'm guilty of this, every pastor is, I think. If your willingness to engage in spiritual activity is regularly, keyword regularly, influenced by who's involved and how many people are involved. And this is, uh, you know, a fact for our church that we struggle with this. Because, you know, any time that we try to do a spiritual initiative, be it discipleship, hey, we want to have some brothers and sisters grow and, you know, go through the Bible together. Or we want to do some sort of serving initiative, hey, we want to serve. You know, the most common question that we always get and it's not malicious in intent, but it is revelatory, is this. Who's going to be there? Send me the list. This is always a tension and struggle for pastors. Whenever pastors are guests, asked to guest speak, if you kind of slip in there, hey, we have a, an audience of 200 plus, guarantee you pastors will move their schedules around. They'll, oh, of course I'll be there for the kingdom. It's like, oh, you know, we have a small youth group of about 10. Uh, marriage. <laughs> Got to watch the kids. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to oversimplify this. There are appropriate and wise ways to consider who's involved, how many people are involved. But what I'm talking about here is a regular overemphasis about caring about visibility and recognition in your spiritual acts. And again, all these are different symptoms of the same root, which is this. The root that we've all had since Ezra's age till now, the desire to be seen, to be recognized. And to this kind of religious hypocrisy, Jesus says, don't do that. Beware. It's going to sneak into your hearts. Be careful of using God and spirituality for your horizontal praise and status and recognition. 
Obviously, it's easier said than done. It's not like we grow up saying, I want to be a hypocrite. Nobody wakes up one day and says, hey, that's what I love to do. I want to be hypocritical. And especially when it comes to motives, it's complicated in there, right? Like, especially Asians, we're very intricate, introspective people. Like, whenever the word motive comes up, people question the motive or the motive or the motive or the motive and get paralyzed. You know what I'm talking about? So it's like, Pastor Stan, I want to serve, but I don't want to serve if I have wrong motives. But if I have wrong motives, am I having the wrong motive for thinking I have the wrong motive? So should I just not serve? In fact, and then they just literally implode. And the funny thing is I know exactly what they're talking about. So we'll talk forever. But like, you know, the motive of your motive is not the issue. The motive is really, and we'll go there. And the point is this. God is not calling you to have perfect motives. That's not what he's saying. You're going to live in the tension of mixed motives your entire life. That's what it means to be in this fallen world. And so I've seen people respond incorrectly and say, oh, because I'll never have pure motives, I just won't do anything at all. Clearly that's not what Jesus prescribed because if that was the case, he would say, you hypocrites, don't, don't give. Don't pray. Don't fast. You're so wrong in your motives. Instead, he says, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast, implying you're doing these things and you're going to continue to do these things as disciples in his kingdom. So he clearly explains the wrong way, but praise God he doesn't just stop there, right? The worst kind of doctor is a doctor who says, oh, sorry, you're screwed. But no, the great physician gives a better prescription to how we are to approach spiritual disciplines, which leads to the third point, the most important one, the remedy. As mentioned earlier, and if you don't hear anything else, please strike with me here. The intrinsic desire that we all share is the desire to be seen. And a closely related desire to that that we see throughout the text is that we are also creatures motivated and driven by incentive. Incentive. In fact, those two words, if you scan the text very briefly, don't you see that play over and over again? Seen, reward. Seen, reward. You do these things to be seen, what will be your reward? Constantly littered throughout, Jesus is getting at these two intrinsic desires, wanting to be seen and recognized and wanting to be rewarded. Now let me use a very foolproof argument. If you want to get anyone to be serious about something, tell them two things. There is a prize and there is an audience. There's a prize and an audience. That's why at the highest levels of competition in any field and performance to be elevated in society, those two elements are almost always present. An audience and a reward. Because why? Those two things are the universal ingredients, the one-two punch to foster motivation. That's why during COVID, athletes struggled. You know what all athletes said? It's not the same without the fans. It's not the same without the crowds. You can't replicate the energy of when you're being seen and watched and there's a public audience. Like, could you imagine if the highest levels of sports were played without the incentive of a prize or reward? Like, could you imagine? So right now, let's just say the Celtics go and the Celtics versus Warriors, and Adam Silver, the commissioner, was like, you know what you guys are praying for? You guys are playing for fun. Like, what the heck? No. You compete for the highest reward and prize. Think about it. Everything significant in life is motivated by incentive. Your job and your boss wants you to work harder. What do they say? You work hard, you get a bonus. Sports motivates you with the incentive of what? A trophy, a prize. And that's why religious hypocrisy exists in the first place. Why? Because we're willing to act the part of Christianity that gets us the reward of praise and public recognition. Same thing. Well, Jesus is fully aware that we are driven by incentive. Specifically, the incentives of being seen and rewarded. So the remedy that Jesus prescribes is not what a lot of us think it is, which is, hey, you feel those desires to be seen and rewarded, 
kill them, get rid of them, suppress them. Number one, that doesn't work. And number two, that would mean that Jesus does not understand how his own created people work. But clearly he does because his remedy and prescription is do not dumb down your motivation. Don't suppress it. I actually want you to redirect it and elevate it to something greater. That's what Jesus says. Now where did I get this from? All throughout the text, Jesus is dismantling the shallow nature of the incentives that the hypocrites chase after. He says hypocrites, they do things to number one, be seen by men. And he says that's too cheap of an incentive. I'm telling you, redirect that motive and strengthen it to want to be seen by not men, but by God. Jesus says the reward that hypocrites chase after, it's too cheap. It's this. It's applause. I want you to want to chase after something greater, which is the reward that comes from God himself. Now let me use an illustration of this. The glory years of our church was when we had something called GBA, which is a basketball league. And in hindsight, it's the silliest thing ever that a small Orange County church has a serious basketball league. Okay? But a lot of people at our church took it very seriously. How do you know this? People would plan their schedules around it. I've seen people move like honeymoons for this. It's like, oh, man, honey, I'm so sorry. I have a GBA game. And the funny thing is the wife would be, oh, I understand. Right? Like, this is crazy how serious we took this thing. People trained for it, paid money for it. People bought new basketball gear and would deck out. And if you ask me, man, why do people take this so seriously? It's so foolish. Like, what's so different from this and any other pickup game? Two things. Play in front of a crazy audience, about 20 church members. And there is a glorious prize that you get a little bit of money to eat with your, your team. But you get the prestigious reward of being the cover photo of the official GBA Facebook page for one whole year. Wow. And people would, it took over our lives. It literally did. Now, if you think about it, it's pretty silly how a few church members and a cover photo can motivate people so hard. Now, imagine Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, comes to our church and is like, what is this chumpy, silly league? I can't believe you guys are sacrificing for that. You deserve a bigger stage. Adam Silver comes in, looks at you and says, you there. You are wasting your energy for just these 20 people and this cheap prize. I want you to play in front of thousands. You'll be seen and recognized by the world. And not is your reward not going to be a Facebook photo? You're going to be on the cover of magazines and you're going to get a trophy. Now here's the issue. As amazing as that sounds, there's two problems. Number one, as you hear that, you already know it's hard to buy into that narrative because you yourself don't believe that you're worthy of that kind of audience. Isn't that true? You yourself believe that you don't deserve that. That's why you're playing in the GBAs of the world. And you think, oh, that's too good to be true. You don't know me. And second, believe it or not, even the caliber of being seen and rewarded at the highest level does not satisfy. I promise I'm not trying to toot my own horn. There's a purpose for me sharing this. But around 10 years ago in 2012, when I was still working at Wong Fu Productions, that was the height of Lin's sanity. So Jeremy Lin kind of like took the world by storm. And no one will argue the fact that historically speaking, he was probably the greatest Cinderella story of all sports, not just basketball. And so at the peak of it, uh, Angela, my wife, and I, we got to eat Korean barbecue with the guy. And I have to say sorry to Angela every day because I neglected her that day so bad. There's photo proof. It's like me, Jeremy, Angela's just there eating like meat by herself. But I didn't care. I was like fanboying. This is my time. Again, the height of Lin's sanity. 
And I'll never forget, because I knew he was Christian. I was like, oh, man, I just want to glean everything I can. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, right now I'm literally at the top of the world in terms of recognition, being seen. It's not that great. Jim Carrey famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. So the two issues are, number one, you personally will never actually believe that you are good enough and worthy enough to deserve the recognition and reward that you crave. Do you see the human conundrum? What you want, you don't think you actually deserve. And secondly, even if somehow you believe that you are deserving, credible witness and testimony tells us who've been on that side, falls short. And this is where the remedy kicks in. We come before the physician and say, so what are we to do? Are we just play with this perpetual chase for something we can never get? And Jesus says, well, that's why the worldly kingdom, it's not going to work. It's set to fail. So in my kingdom, step one is this. Address issue one by recognizing you actually are not deserving. Admit it. You aren't worthy. You see, in the kingdom of the world, the mantra is prove your worth. Prove your worthiness. And in God's kingdom, he flips that and it's quite the opposite. He says, acknowledge and confess your unworthiness. And what happens is then the liberating beauty of the gospel is allowed to move and work and kick in your heart to the spirit. And it addresses your perpetual pursuit of worthiness because now you know you can't achieve it. You know that you don't deserve it or earn it. And Jesus says, that's why I gift it to you. It is a gift. Your worth and your value, it's not intrinsic to yourself because you yourself know you're not worthy of it. I gift it to you by grace. And that's why it's not by earning but it is by works. And that's the beauty of the gospel that step one, issue one is addressed. My worth and my deserving is from Christ. And what that does for you is Jesus says, you are worthy, you are good enough of not just any audience, but the only audience that ever mattered, which is God himself. And this is where it's important to remember, Christianity is fundamentally a faith-based belief. You see, throughout the text, Jesus, if you didn't catch it, he makes it a point to emphasize the fatherhood of God. Right? Jesus doesn't say, when you do things for God, God who sees in secret will reward you. God will do these things. No. Every single time he says, your father who sees in secret, your father will reward you. He says it nine times in this text alone. And the entire Lord's prayer is built on the reality of the fatherly relation that God wants with his children. Now how is this significant and how does this remedy hypocrisy? You know what's interesting? Most scholars agree on the intellectual level and most parents agree on the experiential level that for some reason, Children crave their father's approval and recognition above all else. Do you guys know that? Now, no one doubts that children want the nurturing, love, and warmth and acceptance of their mother. But there's this weird phenomenon that a unique desire for a father's approval is something that a child carries. And a great deal of strengthening or an insurmountable amount of pain and hurt can come from either the abundance of that approval or the lack of that approval that a child feels from the father. You guys know that? I can personally attest to this. Uh, I was part of a uh, soccer league in Fullerton in the fourth grade. Only one year, because my parents weren't about that life, and I had to sign myself up and hitch rides from my friends. Some of these kids today are so lucky, right? I can name names, but man, when their parents like rearrange their schedule to go to like T-ball, right? Our education director is like a T-ball director. It's crazy to me. I'm so jealous. That wasn't about my life. I had to get myself there. 
And you know, the, the, what made it hardest was I was actually pretty good. <laughs> Whatever that means as a fourth grader, I was pretty decent. And so what would happen is I would make a lot of good plays. I would get a lot of praise from my coaches, from other players, from team moms. There's a lot of white moms who loved me. They'd be like, go, Samuel, go, right? Like, you're the best, right? And so I would always get that. But you know the thing that I was always looking for, what I always wanted, what I was scanning the sidelines for was my dad's eyes, not anybody else's. Everything else was noise to me. And here's the weird thing. Nobody taught a fourth grader like me to value my father's approval and recognition like that. Nobody taught me that. If I could make a pretty good logical argument why I think my coach's approval should matter more to me in the context of sports. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Like my dad doesn't know anything about soccer. The coach's opinion should matter. So why is it that I care so much about any situation in context, how my father thinks? And if you think about it, it's almost an act of faith that I believe in my heart that my dad's approval is the most fulfilling and rewarding thing in any situation. It's not logic. It's like, it's faith. That's what I believe. And the best answer I can give to why this is the case is because I'm his child. There is just an innate, unexplicable connection that a child has with a father. And that's why Christianity is literally predicated on the reality of you understanding that God is your father and you are his child. Now, what is the issue with hypocrisy? Let's reverse that. Imagine my father did show up to every game. He witnessed every nitty-gritty kick play that I made. Not only that, every fall I had. Through the course of the game, cheering with the good parts of the game, grieving with the tough parts of the game, coming to me to aid me when I get sick or I get beat up and bruised. And imagine his fatherly eyes are fixed on me the entirety of the game, but my eyes and my heart are caring about everything and everyone else but my father. And my thoughts are preoccupied with what that person thinks or what that person is feeling or how I'm doing or I hope I look good for them. Now it's one thing if it's soccer. But Jesus is talking about God things, like praying and serving, things that are supposed to be centered on God. And yet what often happens is we use God and doing things for him, wanting the approval of man. I thought about this. I think the issue for many of us is because when I use the phrase, the eyes of God, you know what I think a lot of us think about because of maybe the more religious and rule-following culture we grew up in? I think we think of Lord of the Rings, you know, Sauron crazy red bloodshot eye that's just finding you in your darkest moments. I think when I say that, most people think, oh, God's eyes, it's like when I'm in sin and when I'm in secret, he's just there to judge my mistakes and my sins. So the eyes of God are not comforting to you. So of course if that's the case, why would the fact that God sees you be encouraging to you? Why would it motivate you? Because in that framework, the dominant emotion you get from God is disappointment. Nobody gets motivated from a disappointed father. But Jesus makes it clear, God is not a religion, God is not a robot, God is not a system of rules, God is not a detached deity, God doesn't have judgmental eyes of disappointment. If I can use the analogy for sake of argument, God has the eyes of a soccer dad. Jesus speaks against hypocritical religion, therefore not ultimately because it disappoints him, but dare I say because hypocritical religion is hurtful. It's hurtful to the father. It's acting like you're in a relationship when you're not. The heart of the text calls us to, by faith, value the eyes, the recognition and reward of the Heavenly Father. 
Now to close, let me give just really quick practical thoughts and applications, and, and we'll be done. Please don't think, this, think that, oh, therefore spiritual disciplines are dangerous or don't matter. Uh, point number, application one, spiritual disciplines do matter, and we should pursue them. You know, I don't love my wife, Angela, because I plan date nights, and because I try to cook good food for her, and because I give her massages. Those are not, they're not precursors to my love. Rather, I try to plan date nights, I try to cook good food, I try to give massages, I try to discipline myself to leave room in my heart to hear what she wants, what's bothering her, what she cares about, all because I love her. It's not legalistic for me to discipline my life around doing these things for my wife and to be with her because it's all undergirded with love. It becomes hypocrisy if you're doing things without love. So giving to the needy, praying, coming before God in devotion are not fundamentally legalistic. They are the natural overflowing results of being in a loving relationship with God. That's why Jesus says, in my kingdom, when you do these things. Because in the same way that if I love my wife, it's a matter of when do you go on dates with her? When do you talk to her? Same thing with God. God the Father asks, when you come to me in prayer. When you care about the less fortunate as I do. You see what's going on there? We're the ones who's twisted it. So step one is spiritual disciplines matter and loving him means to therefore pursue those things in a non-hypocritical fashion. Number two, this is probably the most controversial one, but I'm going to include it anyways. Lean into your desire for reward. Lean into your desire for reward. It is mind-boggling to me, especially in this day and age. Uh, people, again, millennials cared a little more about purpose when it came to work. Gen Z could care less if it has a good paycheck. Man, you give me flexibility, you give me money, I'm out. Like no loyalty whatsoever. And what that taps into is, wow, Gen Z has really unearthed and clarified the desire for reward. So lean into that. That's what I'm saying. Jesus is very clear. The motivation of righteousness is not just that the Father sees, it's that the Father rewards. Now this has historically been theologically a battleground because maybe we're uncomfortable. Maybe we've been taught... Well, the gospel is not about reward. It's not about prosperity or me doing things so that God gives me something. And just know there's a fine line between obeying God to get something, but also really listening to what scripture is saying. And I've heard various explanations of this. I've heard some people say, well, you know what the reward is? The reward is being in the presence of God. And that just did not satisfy me. You know what that's like saying? It's like you get seen by God and you get rewarded by being seen by God. That's repetitive. That doesn't motivate me. It's almost like you're just trying to... Explain away this discomfort you have with the fact that, but God seems to be saying, when you do stuff, he's going to reward it. That's what the scripture seems to be saying. Now let me say this, I haven't figured it out. But I know at least very much that God wants us to believe being a Christian, living the kingdom life and following Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. That there's a payoff. Nobody gives up their time, their effort, works hard, late hours into the night if they don't believe it's worth it. Some of you guys are so stifled and stagnant in your Christianity because it's quite frankly not really worth it to you. You're just playing the game. And what Jesus says in Hebrews, not, not, not Jesus, God in Hebrews 11.6 says, faith by definition is number one, you draw near to God because you know that he's real and he sees. But more importantly that he rewards those who seek him. 
And whether that reward is something in this life or the next, whether that reward is something we can quantify by our own words, the point is that's what he says, that's what we believe. It's worth it. There's a payoff. And third and last, grow to love the secret place. In a world that is so caught up with public eye, social media, being tagged and stuff, what people think of you, grow to live the kingdom lifestyle of loving the secret place. There's a famous quote that reads, the true test of character is what someone does when no one is watching. And I think we all understand that concept. But I think Jesus would edit that quote to say, well, for a Christian, somebody's always watching. And more importantly, the Heavenly Father watches closely when no one is around. You see, there's never a moment for a child of God when God's not watching. But especially in the times you feel most alone. And you feel most abandoned by the eyes of this world. It says the Father's care, attention is nearest to you. And I think some of you need to hear that because you, for whatever reason, feel not seen. You feel not recognized. You feel not acknowledged. And if you do feel seen, you feel seen by the judgmental eye that you have fabricated, but it's not the eyes of the Father. And what you need to see is you are seen by God, especially in those moments. And if I can issue a challenge, uh, particularly to the Christians, and I'll close here. If the only time that you are Christian in your behavior, in your heart, in your thoughts, is in the public eye, this is actually pretty telling. If the only time you're Christian is on Sunday, that says something. And what Jesus says is watch out for the carbon monoxide of hypocrisy. It will sneak up before you ever know it. And one day you realize it was a mask all along. I'm a hypocrite. And Jesus warns against that. So ask God to grow your faith in believing, man, God, you are not someone who just sees, but you reward. You're good. So I can invite the praise team up as I lead us in a time of prayer. If I can just ask us to reflect. What is it that we value in being seen so much? Who is it or was it, what is it whose recognition gets us going? Some of us, it's our employer. Some of us, it's friends. Some of us, it's a romantic interest. Whatever that might be, not to discount those things. But how far in the pecking order has the value of God's eyes and, and, and recognition in your life gone? And if you're not a Christian, like I mentioned, how are you going to resolve the issue that what you really want in being recognized and rewarded with, you have to get over the hurdle that you actually believe you deserve it. Because I believe if we are honest with ourselves, we know we're broken. We know we need a Savior. So if you can reflect on those things and ask God to grow your faith, particularly in the